Last week, we saw verses 9 to 11, where Paul was instructing these Corinthians, reminding them that who they used to be and who they used to be cannot be who they still are if they are to be a genuine Christian. There has to be repentance in their life. And he reminded them, such were some of you. But they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We now move to verse 12, and Lord willing, we'll conclude in verse 20 today. In chapter 6, we see here, especially in this passage, that the Corinthians are having a very skewed view of Christian liberty, Christian freedom. Christian freedom is the doctrine that teaches us that we are free in Jesus Christ. What are we free from? We are free to not sin. We were born in sin and we're slaves to it from birth. We obeyed its every whisper and we loved it. We were mastered by it. But now that we've been a Christian and set free from our sin and bondage, we can say no. We can resist. We can love God and serve God with the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Christian freedom also teaches us how we can define what is sinful and so that our consciences are not bound by human tradition or the opinions of other people. The Bible gets to define what is sinful, what is right or wrong. Not my tradition, not my culture, not my preferences. I can't tell you, hey, stop doing that because I don't like it. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's right or wrong. People like to play these games all the time. What we see is that the scriptures tell us what is right or wrong. And as long as we're not violating what the scriptures say is sinful, then we have freedom to do that activity without it being sin. And so Christian liberty gives us this freedom to live our liberty in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and letting the scriptures be our guide as to what is right and wrong. Christian liberty does not give us any excuse to sin. And some people live like this. Some people live as if they have a license now that they've been born again. Jesus has already forgiven me of my past, my present, and my future sins. So guess what? I could live any way I want. I'm going to heaven. That is so far from the truth. The gospel does not give us a license to disobey God. In fact, all the more, it should encourage and empower our obedience in this way. Like Paul says to the Romans in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or God forbid. How can we who die to sin still live in it? No, Christian freedom does not give us the opportunity to indulge ourselves because we're saved and forgiven and we could live any way we want. In fact, if anyone lives like that, they're probably showing that they're really not a Christian. They're not a were person, they are an are person. If you remember that from last week. The 1689 London Baptist Confession says this on Christian freedom in paragraph 3. 
Those who use Christian liberty as an excuse to practice any sin or nurture any sinful desire pervert the main objective of the grace of the gospel of their own destruction. And they completely destroy the purpose of Christian liberty. The purpose is righteousness before him all the days of our lives. And this is what the problem is here in chapter 6. The Corinthians did not understand how to exercise their Christian liberty. They were thinking their freedom allowed them to get away with anything. They felt that they had the freedom to sin and were not understanding that. And this is why you have the divisions in the church. This is why no one says anything when the guy is sleeping with his stepmother. This is why they're suing one another and trying to defraud one another in the church. Well, they have the freedom in Jesus to do what they want. Doesn't that sound like a church you want to join? And now we go to verse 12, and Paul's going to address this very thing with them. And if you notice in your Bible, there's quotation marks around some of the sentences in verses 12 and following. What Paul is doing here is he is quoting the Corinthians. So this phrase, all things are lawful for me, is not something that Paul is saying himself. He is quoting the Corinthians. This is apparently a common phrase, slogan, that was being uttered by the Corinthians. All things are lawful for me. What does that mean? I can do whatever I want. There's nothing against the law. What, God, what law? God's law. All things are lawful for me. And here Paul says this uh, to them, but not all things are helpful. What we see here is, we've used this word before, and some of you may recognize it. The Corinthians were essentially antinomian. Antinomian is, there are people who say, we don't need God's law anymore. We don't need God's law as a standard for righteousness. We don't need God's law to tell us how to live. We don't need God's law to tell us what is right. We are free in Jesus, and there's people like that even today. Um, how dumb. What God said was sinful is still sinful today. It doesn't change. But even still, Paul says, even though there might be some things not against the law, maybe there's some things that you can do in your Christian liberty that, yeah, God didn't say not to do that. What's Paul's answer to that? Not all things are helpful. The word helpful there means um, beneficial or profitable. Yeah, you can do that, but is it really helping you? You're going to flex your muscles to say, look what I can do in Jesus. But is that really benefiting you? Don't use your Christian liberty as a license to harm yourself because you think you're free in Christ is what he's saying. Yes, you have the freedom to go do something that God has not forbidden, but that doesn't mean you should. <laughs> if you want to go eat a Big Mac 365 days a year, you're freeing Jesus to go do it. Probably not a helpful thing. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying. You could put whatever thing in that category that God has not said is wrong. You could do that and live like that. This is not going to really help you in the end. Paul then repeats this. All things are lawful for me. Again, he's repeating them, quoting them. 
But Paul says, here's his answer, but I will not be dominated by anything. Not only is it not helpful, you have to be careful how you exercise your freedom. You don't allow yourself to be enslaved by something that is supposed to be good. Yes, you have the freedom to do blank. But if that freedom turns into an addiction, if that freedom turns into something you can't live without, you have to be careful and see how you have been benefited in the end. You could turn anything good into something bad. You could turn something that is meant to help you and use it as a way to be dominated or enslaved or entrapped by it. And obviously people have a different opinion on alcohol. But yes, you have the freedom to drink and not get drunk. But if even drinking without getting drunk dominates you, guess what? You've abused your freedom. And how have you benefited yourself? Yes, you could have a smartphone. But if you've been dominated to the point that you can't even have a normal conversation when you're around other people because you're always on your phone, are we preaching yet? (laughs) Because you've been dominated and your phone has almost become like another appendage on your body. How does that help you? Hmm. And so this is what he's trying to help them see, first of all. He's, he, he starts soft here. They, they, these are softball responses, right? He's just trying to set the stage. Yeah, you have freedom. You're right, you have freedom. But not everything is helpful. The things that God, you know, said are neither black or white. Look at verse 13. He quotes them again. Food is meant for the stomach, And the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Here was another saying that they said, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. The Corinthian philosophy was that our bodies need to be satisfied with every craving it desires. Think of how dangerous it is to live like that. Essentially, what the Corinthians were living like, remember there's this old saying, if it feels good, those are the Corinthians. If it feels good, do it. This is what is meant by the phrase, what? Food is meant for the stomach. My stomach gets hungry. Guess what? There's an answer for that. So I will satisfy my hunger by eating this food. And the stomach is meant for food. They're meant for each other. And so they were saying this phrase to satisfy every desire within them and calling it their freedom to do so. But I want to do that, so I'll do it, even if it's right or wrong. I need to listen to my body and give it what it wants. And the context here, and Paul will deal with this with the rest of chapter 6, is what? Sex. The one way that the Corinthians were abusing their freedom was with the issue of sex. And this is a very important subject. And for chapter 6 and chapter 7, chapter 7, he deals with 
um, widows and singleness and marriage and remarriage and divorce. He's going to get hot and heavy going into the next, this chapter and the next chapter and the chapter after that. The context here, again, is the Corinthians felt they had a freedom to sin sexually. I'm free in Jesus. So every sexual desire I feel, I will satisfy. Wow. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Just like I feed my stomach when I'm hungry, I will feed my sexual appetite when I want to be satisfied. If it feels good, do it. Some might say, well, don't I have the right to be happy? If that's what makes me happy, why can't I do it? Well, don't I have the right to enjoy my life if that's what I like? I need to do the things that bring me the most satisfaction. And look what Paul says. Yes, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. But guess what? God will destroy both. What's he saying? That one day the biological function of the digestive system won't last forever. What is he saying? Corinthians, your analogy stinks. To put it nicely. Why? Because you're equating something that is temporary, your digestive system, with something that is eternal, your sexual being. And you cannot confuse the two. You cannot have freedom to sin sexually any way you want. God has created sex. It's good, it's beautiful, and it's a gift within the bounds of a committed covenantal marriage relationship between one man and one woman for life. That's what God has designed. You have the freedom to have sex with your spouse within that covenantal relationship because God is the one who invented marriage. God is the one who created sex. God gave it to us as a gift. And this is a good thing. And when we abuse something good that God has given to us and use it in ways that God has not ordained, guess what? We hurt ourselves and we hurt other people. Your analogy stinks, Corinthians. We have to use God's gift as it has been designed. So, the Corinthians were thinking, well, well, I mean, the food is meant for the stomach, you know, whatever. I get hungry when I eat. Why can't I have sex when I want it? And again, the specific context here, which we're going to see in a second, is prostitution. Apparently, there were some members of the Corinthian church that were sleeping with prostitutes and saying, I am free in Jesus to do so. Just when you think it can't get any worse for this church, right? It just gets worse every week as we, keep the, as we get deeper in 1 Corinthians. Incredible. Your food is temporary, but your body's are forever. This is what he's trying to explain to them. You cannot compare the two. Food is temporary. Your bodies are forever. And this is one of the biggest lies of the sin of adultery. I knew a man I confronted about his adultery some years ago. I said, why'd you do it? You have a beautiful family. You have children. You have a beautiful wife. His answer to me was, well, I deserve to be happy. And that's one of the oldest and biggest lies in all the world. 
I deserve to be happy, so I will do what I want. And that's the very lie that the serpent told Eve. Did God really say that you can't have that? Oh, he just doesn't want you to miss out on something good. That's the lie from the garden. That we deserve to be happy. That we need to be happy. That happiness is our ultimate joy and goal. No, God has not called you to be happy to gratify yourself, contrary to his law. God has called you to be holy. And that's the only true way to be happy, is to be holy. For in your holiness is where God gives you true joy, true satisfaction, and contentment. And when you violate and go outside the boundaries of God's design, then you will bring harm and destruction to your life. And this is why he says at the end of verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your body was not designed to give yourself to anybody you want, anytime you want. Your body was designed for purity in the confines of God's design for it. It was designed by God, and God is the one who gets to say how we use our bodies, not your sinful cravings. And the word that he uses there, we've seen this many times already in 1 Corinthians for sexual immorality, is the word porneia. It's the same word that he uses about the man sleeping with the stepmother in chapter 5. Your body is not meant for that. That's wicked, that's sinful. You have to use it the way God has instructed. Look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What Paul's saying here is that the biological function, again, of digesting food is temporary. Some say, well, are we going to eat food in heaven? I sure hope so. <laughs> I, what we do know is that we will have a body like the Lord Jesus. When we see him, we will be like him in our glorified bodies. Amen? Can't you wait for that? I can't. Well, what do we know about the body of the Lord Jesus? He ate food. After he resurrected, he ate with the disciples. He ate fish on the beach with Peter. I'm game. Right? I'm game for that. Somehow he makes this analogy. I mean, how all the digestive stuff works, and I, we, I can't tell you that. The Bible doesn't talk about how we're going to digest our food, and we don't know. Hopefully, maybe that's what it means is we eat and we don't get fat, okay? That's, maybe that's what it means. We could eat, it just dissolves, and we're happy and content, and wouldn't that be great? No diets in heaven, amen? All right. Um, hopefully there's sushi. That's right. okay. But anyway, anyway, let's just keep moving, but... Um, I lost my place here. Let me get it. <laughs> Just give me a second. Um, oh, yes. Um, your analogy stinks. Again, you're comparing something temporary with something eternal. You were made to last forever. That's what he's saying. You know, some people think of heaven and eternity, that we're going to be these floaty spiritual ghosts just floating around playing harps on clouds. That's not heaven. Matter of fact, that's some skewed version of hell, I think, honestly, because that sound, does not sound like heaven to me. What is heaven? It's a new heaven and a new earth. 
What do we know? It's physical. When the Lord Jesus returns, he makes all things new. He puts it back like the garden was supposed to be. It's not some floaty spiritual place. It's earthly. It's physical. The Lord Jesus told Thomas, touch me. He wasn't a ghost when he resurrected from the dead. And Thomas touched him and touched his wounds. Yes, he's making all things new. This is what it means that the second coming, when the Lord Jesus returns, the trumpet is blown and death is no more. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Why do the dead in Christ rise first? I guess they got six, six more feet to go. That's true. They need a six-foot head start. Why do the dead in Christ rise first? Well, their souls are already with the Lord, right? Because, again, it's not just about your spiritual being. God is making all things new, even you. He's going to restore you the way you ought to have been. He's going to make a new you who can't get sick, who can't sin anymore. Everything about you will be new. And you will not just be immaterial. You will be very real. Very real. This is what he's trying to say here. Food is temporary. You are eternal. So how you use your bodies now matters. It matters. As Christ is sanctifying you and, and making you into who you ought to be. After your justification, one day we'll be glorified and we will be completely different. But this is why Paul says, value who you are. Because God made you in his image to live for his glory. Do not abuse your freedom to gratify your flesh and use terrible analogies to make excuses for your sin. The Lord, God raised the Lord from the dead with his power. He will also raise us up. Amen, amen. Your loved ones who are buried will not stay there. When the Lord returns, there's a great reunion and everything will be made right. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. You are more than what you crave. That's what he's trying to tell them. You are more than your, than your sexual appetite. You have worth. You have dignity. You have value. You're much more than your cravings. And of course, the first century Greek world, they were very much in this mentality that your desires were a god. And you basically worship that god by fulfilling every desire you have. And this is how you get all kinds of sexual sin. He goes on in verse 15, and he says this. Do you not know? There's that phrase again. He uses it again and again. You're supposed to know this, Corinthians. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your body doesn't belong to you. You're only borrowing it. Your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your creator. And now he's your savior. You're a part of his church. And as a believer, you are a part of the body of Christ. Don't you know that? 
So if you are a member of Christ's body, if Christ lives within you, you don't have the right to do what you want with your body because it belongs to him. Then he asks this question, shall I then take the members of Christ, talking about his body, our bodies, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. That's what they were doing. He says, think about this the next time, Corinthians, you're going to go hire a prostitute. Think of it like this. You're bringing Jesus along to sleep with her. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Of course it does. And when you think of it like that, you probably won't do it. Why? Because I'm a part of the body of Christ. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I represent Christ on this earth. So when I do something like that, it's like I'm making Jesus do it with me. That's what he's saying. Never. Look at verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. C.S. Lewis once said, Every time a man and a woman enter into a sexual relationship, they enter into a spiritual bond that must be eternally enjoyed or endured. Here's the point. Sex is much more than something physical. We just think of sex being a physical activity, but it is most certainly spiritual. The physical act of sex unites the two together this is how God has designed it. It's beautiful, it's sacred, it's holy when it's utilized the way God has created it. And here Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2. For as it is written, he says, the two will become one flesh. What is he talking about? He's talking about the first marriage, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2.24, this is what it says. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's what happens in a marriage. A man and woman are married. They're brought together. They consummate their marriage with sex. And they are not just two individual people. They become one spiritual unit, united by this physical reality and activity that God has designed of sex. And it's beautiful. So therefore, if you're going to do that and hire a prostitute, you've just become one with her. And then you're going to go do that with some, another woman. And then another one after that. How many women are you going to be one with? That's what sex does. And this is why sex is such a devastating thing when it's abused. Because it destroys us from within. You're not just giving your body to somebody when you have sex with them. You're giving them your heart, your soul, your mind. And this is why it hurts so bad. This is why it hurts so badly when it goes wrong. 
This is why sexual sin is so damaging to us. Feelings of betrayal and hurt and worthlessness come into the picture. Why? Because you were never meant to live like that. That's why. God knows the damage that living a sexually promiscuous lifestyle does to a person. Paul says, as a Christian, when you are joined to the Lord, when you are born again, you take Christ everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, Christ goes with you. You are joined to the Lord. You are a part of his body. This is amazing. To put it in perspective, would you take Jesus to hit on the girl at the bar to take her to sleep with her that night? Would you take Jesus to flirt with your coworker at your job? Would you take Jesus with you to the strip club or to visit the porn site? Because as a Christian, that's what you're doing when you abuse sex in that way. This is what he's trying to do. You don't have the freedom to do this because you don't know who you are. These Corinthian Christians were sleeping with prostitutes and then justifying their behavior with theological arguments. That's what's crazy. All things are lawful for me. See, this is what antinomianism does to a person. What's the answer for this, Paul? Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. Run from it. Don't even mess with it. Don't play with it. Run far away if this sin creeps up into your life. Paul says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That's the answer, is to run away. Why? I'm not say, I don't think Paul is saying here that sexual immorality is the worst kind of sin you can commit. I think what he's trying to say is this, is that you could sin in other ways. You could steal something, that's outside the body. You can get drunk, that's outside the body. You put it in your body, but it starts from without. But sexual morality starts where? Within. And it does so much damage to us. It has long-lasting effects, shame, guilt, issues with self-esteem, addiction. It rewires your brain. That's what studies show about pornography. It's hard for a man to look at any woman the same way because his brain is rewired because he has sinned against his own body, damaging his mind and his soul, uniting himself with people that he ought not to unite himself with. A good example of fleeing from sexual immorality is the story of Joseph in Genesis 39. In Genesis 39, you know the story. Joseph is in Potiphar's house after being sold as a slave by his brothers. He goes and spending some time in jail. He goes, well, this is, I'm sorry, before he's in jail. He's in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife is there and she's trying to make advances towards him. In verse 7, we see in Genesis 39, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has put in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you. 
because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We talked yesterday about the fear of God in our pursuit of holiness. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. She kept begging him. She kept pleading with him. She kept seducing him. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled out and got out of the house. He ran away. He lost his cope. As some people say, he kept his character. It's not worth it. Sexual sin will always destroy you. Even if you're able to keep it a secret, it will always come back to haunt you. It's not worth it. Run. Run like Joseph. Run like Joseph. And Paul concludes with one final argument. In verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, Another do you not know. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Whoa, that's a verse. Do you not know that your body is a temple? Another way to think of this, not only are you a member of Christ's body, you are joined to Christ. Christ goes with you wherever you go. But even more than that, consider who you are. You are a temple. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the temple housed the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt in the midst of Israel in Jerusalem. It was there that the priests made sacrifices and brought offerings. It was there behind the curtain that no one was allowed to go. It was there where the Spirit of God dwelt among His people And of course, now there's no more temple. And so the New Testament tells us that the temple's not needed anymore because why? We are the temple of God. Why? Because when you became born again, when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That's an amazing thing. And so therefore, the temple is not a physical building, but it's all of God's people. We're the temple of God together. He said that early in 1 Corinthians. But also individually, you are also temples of the Holy Spirit. And God owns the building. God owns the building. God gets to decide what color the carpet is. God gets to decide what color the walls are. It's his building. I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about you. God gets to decide who has the keys. God gets to decide who gets to come in. It's God's. This body, we're only borrowing it. We must take care of it. Something I've been greatly convicted of over the last couple years is I've tried to lose weight because I have not been taking care of my body well. But also, it could apply to many facets of life. But in context, it's about sexual sin. Not just diet or exercise or things we put in our body. But remember, this how we use our bodies matters. Why? Because we are eternal. 
When we die, we don't cease to exist. When we die, we will get a new body. That's not a brand new one. That's just a restored one. That's why the dead in Christ rise. Why does the dead in Christ rise first if God doesn't need their old bodies anymore? Because he's making them new, holy, right. And this phrase, you are not your own, boy, that goes against every American fiber in my being. What do you mean I'm not my own? I'm a self-made man. No, I'm not. We have everything we have by the grace of God. We love individualism, but as a Christian, we surrender that when we are part of him. We don't live for ourselves. We live for him. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 14, 7 through 9. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. You are not your own. And he says it again to the Corinthians, this time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what he says. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Why? That those who might live, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There you go. A Christian is one that surrenders the deed to God. I'm not my own. Why? Look at verse 20. For you were bought with a price. You. He purchased you. He redeemed you with his own blood. Trust me, you don't want the alternative. You don't want the alternative. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All things are lawful for me. Really? Really, Corinthians? You're not your own. The Lord Jesus has purchased you. You are his bride, his flock, his family. You're a part of him. How dare you join yourself in those ways? We are more than what we desire. We are more than what we crave. We are meant to last forever. How we live today matters, and we must do so in and under the lordship of Christ. Let me just speak for a moment because I know that probably the vast majority of this audience, if not every single person in this room, has sinned in some way sexually. And you probably felt under great conviction listening to this. Trust me, I'm preaching to myself as well. Let me remind you, as Jeff did earlier, that even though we have not been all that we should have been all of our lives, we have been bought with a price. Remember that even though you may have done these things in such a sinful way, but remember that the grace and the love and the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ, even though you may have messed up 
The hope of the gospel is not that you're downtrodden forever. The hope of the gospel, the promise of the gospel, is not that you wear some scarlet letter. That's not your identity. Remember the verses that came before. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of feeling guilty for sins you have repented of, for mistakes you have made, for heartaches that you have brought upon yourself and maybe others, encourage yourself this morning in the gospel. And to make the battle plan and the commitment and to have the knowledge today to know how to resist temptation today and tomorrow and the day after that because it will come. You have to be ready for it. But remember, I take Jesus wherever I go. Whatever I do, he comes along for the ride. Would I be doing that if I physically saw him there? Of course not. Of course not. Such were some of you. So the last sentence says it all. So, based on that, what do you do? Glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. How you use your body matters. Let's pray. Ask God to help us as we apply this message. Father, thank you. Lord, such an important, but of course difficult passage, I know for many. Lord, we are all sinners. We've all sinned in different ways. God, that are not right, that are, that are unholy. Some of us live in shame. Some of us live in guilt. Father, I ask that those who are feeling guilty or shameful may be released from that if they've confessed and repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, that they can understand their identity in Christ of being new. They are not damaged goods. They are not used. They have been made holy in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been set free from the power of sin. They've been given a new identity in Christ Jesus. Help us to live holy lives as we pursue holiness sexually. God, I know this is so difficult for many, many people. Help us as we get wisdom from chapter 7 about singleness and widows and marriage and, and some of these sexual things will continue to come up. Help us, God, to have great wisdom, great gospel insight. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to resist temptation, especially in the area of sex, when it is outside the bounds that you have created for us. We love you, Lord, and ask you to be glorified in our lives. Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated wholly unto thee. Not my will be done, but yours. We're not our own. We don't live for our own. Help us to glorify you in our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.